Bring me your tired, your stressed, your overwhelmed and anxious, yearning for some joy in life. It's time to go out and play. Welcome back to Playgrounding. This is Kara Stuart Fortier. Today, this episode, um, it's something I've been hoping would happen for years. Um, I've been following Vince Gauman since the very, very first days of Playgrounding. His work at the time was focused primarily on play for children. Um, and instead of the usual, you know, heavy focus on science and um, psychology, he also weaved in and was an unapologetically spiritual. Uh, it was different and it fascinated me. Um, but at the time I was too chicken. I didn't have the courage to reach out to him. Um, but a few weeks ago, he wrote an article that really got me. And we're going to talk about that. Um, encourage or not, I hit reply. And the next thing you know, we're talking and boom, this episode. I'm just so honored to announce that you are about to hear a conversation with Vince Gauman on Playgrounding. And I want to say a quick word here too. This conversation is also unapologetically spiritual. And I've really struggled with how spirituality fits into playgrounding. You know, in today's environment, it's discussions around spirituality can be really divisive. And I'm not just talking about the obvious divisions that happen when you talk about religion. Um, I'm talking about different divisions. They're a little more subtle. They're the ones that make you say, mm, this sounds a little woo-woo, and then you switch it off. I say that because I'm one of those people, or I have been. I mean, I go to Burning Man, but my camp is more about blowing stuff up than about meditating. Um, spirituality and spiritual stuff online, it's kind of become its own subculture. It has a language, language of its own. It has its own assumptions. Um, it's, a, it's kind of a you're in or you're out. You're either in it, you join it, you understand it, or you see it and you maybe mock it or don't really want anything to do with it. It's kind of tends to be one or the other, or you just ignore it. But it really doesn't have to be that way. Talk, talking about spirituality does not have to be that way at all. I mean, I blow stuff up at Burning Man, but I'm also very spiritual and I love meditation. I'm actually studying to become an interfaith minister, for goodness sake. Um, so there's that. <laughs> but I come from a very specific religious subculture, which has also been a source of trauma for me. So at its heart, that's what you're going to kind of hear about today. Not my religious subculture, but healing and trauma and plays a role in it. What I'm learning and what uh, Vince has really helped reinforce for me over the years is that play really strengthens that part of us, that trauma weakens or even destroys. Um, it strengthens your inner core. It helps you get right at your identity. It helps you maybe rediscover it and then strengthen it. Um, play can be so empowering um, as a spiritual experience even. Um, maybe even the same mechanisms in our minds and our souls that make play so powerful are also the ones that um, feed our, our spiritual journey, that lead us on our spiritual journey. So yeah. Over the years, I've just learned so much about this from Vince. So now let me introduce you to him. Vince Galman is a healer, speaker, author, poet, musician, and singer-songwriter. He is deeply committed to the work of helping people heal, and through their healing work, positively shifting the consciousness of the world. His work draws upon his training as a somatic or body-based counselor, 
breathwork practitioner, and life coach, as well as 20 years of intense personal healing. Beyond his one-on-one practice, he is a well-traveled presenter of keynotes and play shops to organizations, conferences, and communities on subjects such as play, leadership, communication, intuition, creativity, emotional intelligence, and trauma and healing, which is what we're going to talk a lot about today. He also presents webinars on play, communication, and leadership. He's also the author of two books, Let the Fire Burn, Nurturing the Creative Spirit of Children. It's a fun and inspiring children's book for adults. And Wild Empty Spaces, Poems for the Opening Heart. This episode is a little longer than usual. Hope you don't mind. Just couldn't cut it. Um, So now, meet Vince. Welcome, Vince. It's been a long time coming. I've been wanting to invite you on Playgrounding, and there could be no better time than now. So thank you so much for joining us on Playgrounding. Thank you for having me. (laughs) Um, So I've been a huge fan of your work for many years, um, and you've started out when I first discovered you several years ago, you were focused primarily on play and children and working with teachers. Um, And then you took a different turn. And I kind of want to like hear about you, you kind of went more into a spiritual um, place. And then now your writings have literally just started blowing my mind. And a couple weeks, a couple days ago, or weeks ago, or whatever, I discovered an article that just... I knew I had to reach out and I'm just, I'd really love to hear about that journey and what you've been doing over the last few years as you weave play into something a little bit different. Um, so if you wouldn't mind talking about that. Well, I mean, I've been on a pretty strong spiritual journey for 20 years now mm-hmm. and play teaching play along with other topics. I mean, I've done a lot of training or workshops on intuition and, communication and leadership um, play has been what I've been most known for. Um, but those, those workshops and those trainings were my way of expressing the, the spiritual awareness that was growing in me. Um, and, uh, you know, and, 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 it, and it just kind of blew up bigger than I thought it would, you know, I was traveling a lot and it was, you know, the topic that I was most known for was called remembering to play. And it was a topic that sort of, it was the right topic at the right time because, <laughs> A lot of educators, early childhood educators, especially, were, were were talking about you know what's happening to play. You know why are we pushing so much our kids to to perform to become um, something more than they actually are to teach them to become little adults. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and play was becoming uh, a, a talking point outside of the context of, of schooling and in, in the area of you know why aren't kids playing outdoors anymore? Why are they spending so much time in front of technology, et cetera, et cetera? So. So it was a topic that found its its right moment, but um, you know, I and I and I traveled a lot, and I had a lot of success, and a lot of fun. Um, but because of my own healing crisis and what I went through, um, I I went down the rabbit hole, so to speak, more and more into my own my own psyche. And uh, in that, I found uh, a calling to become a registered somatic therapist. And so then I built a, a full practice, um, helping people heal their own trauma. And I also then became a certified breath worker and, uh, and then studied other healing modalities. And then what I started doing was um, I realized that now educators were also talking about trauma. So now they're talking about play and they're talking about trauma. So now I was intersecting play and trauma together or the lack of play and how it, how it ties into trauma. Mm-hmm. 
then that was it took it took the message to a whole different level and then uh, and then now it's gone even beyond that which we can maybe get to later <laughs> on we're experiencing collective trauma here on this whole planet yeah <laughs> yeah the, the, it's such an amazing thing and we always when i it used to be when I think of mental health and even after spending a few years trying to figure my own, my own out, I knew about severe mental illness, like bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, things that, um, you can be diagnosed with that are an, an actual illness. So we like, feel well, that's mental, that's a mental illness. Um, then there's like, well, there's anxiety and depression and those are just, everybody's got that. So do this pop a pill, blah, blah, blah. And then around me too, time came a lot more conversation around trauma but for me, I didn't really completely understand what trauma is. And I, I knew about PTSD. I knew about all these things. But I, I, it might sound silly to say let's define trauma, but I'd really love to for this conversation because I think for a lot of people, what they think trauma is, is a very narrow slice of what it really can be in someone's life and that more people have experienced it than really understand. Well, there's different ways to define trauma, but... Um... A simple way of, of defining trauma is that it's a state of immobility in the mm. system. It's where energy or life force or chi mm -hmm. gets stuck in the system. Um, so the child, for instance, was abused and her sympathetic nervous system, which is the nervous system that takes us into fight or flight, couldn't activate couldn't fulfill what it wanted to do because it was not safe to fight or flight mm -hmm. so then it goes into a state of shutdown or freeze and that energy that wanted to push or run gets trapped in the nervous system gets trapped in the musculature and then that freeze state later on in life can manifest in all sorts of chronic mental emotional issues mm -hmm. um, another definition of trauma is that it's a fundamental disconnect it's where we can no longer connect to our essential, our essential nature. Mm -hmm. The fluid state that is most natural to us, most natural to children, and obviously natural to, to, to nature itself, to our ecosystem, uh, that fluid state gets blocked. It's kind of like little dams start to build up in the river. Yeah. And, um, and so we can no longer connect to our vitality. We can no longer connect to certain emotions. We can no longer connect to our voice. Mm -hmm. We may not feel it, be able to express ourselves as clearly. And so then what happens is that the psychophysiology has to adapt. So for instance, if someone is being abused, one of the ways they may adapt is by becoming obedient. Yep. Because it's actually in the obedience that they're able to survive. Mm -hmm. And so what happens is that, that that shapes their identity and then they become more passive, more subservient later on in life and they have a hard time putting themselves first. They have a hard time saying no. They have a hard time asking for what they want. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and they think that's their personality. Oh, I'm just a person who has a hard time doing that's just who I am. And then they get a personality test and then the personality <laughs> test validates that. <laughs> what people don't realize is that personality comes from the Greek persona, which means mask. And so what we think is our personality is very much in a large part is actually a, a survival adaptation due to unresolved trauma. Yeah, I've always I had always thought of personality as like I am an ENFP or I am a INTJ or whatever. It's 
and so, but I would take these tests and, and my husband does this too, where he takes them periodically. And there are times when we shift and change over time. And I thought, well, I guess this is not some immutable thing. <laughs> the per- way I look at personality tests is that it's a, it's a <laughs> snapshot of your current tendencies. Okay. But the question is, where do those tendencies come from? Yeah. They're not just coming from adaptations from this lifetime, but they're also coming from uh, ancestral trauma that passed down and codes your DNA. Yeah. And I used also to... the soul, you know? Yeah, it's exactly. But also, also the authentic <laughs> part of us as well, which informs us, which I'd like to speak to, but yeah. Exactly, yes. And, and, and like, you know, like I was saying before, I feel like a lot of times when, when we will go in with a symptom of anxiety or depression, or like I was put in an eating disorder class and or different things like that, I feel like what I finally realized after a couple of years of that is that I was munching around the edges of this thing and, and I, and it wasn't getting fixed. I was just going through a lot of like very motions trying to fix things, but there was a core there that I knew was there. So, but yes, and, and this, this whole idea that, that, and so in a lot of ways they were treating a tendency that I was experiencing at that moment. They weren't treating the thing. Um, but our mental health system is so overwhelmed and, and Kaiser, God love them. They're doing their best. <laughs> um, but I, I really wanted you to talk about this ancestral issue because I have always thought of it as just this kind of spiritual thing in the Bible. They talk about the sins of the father visited upon the son. And then we're in this environment of rugged individuality where, you know, no, I'm, I am who I am and I'm going to reject my, my family's grief and trauma and it's just not that simple is it and no you know ancestral trauma is a heavy load mm-hmm. it's a heavy load that that no one can avoid yeah. and it's in my time of working with people and my journey of healing myself i've come to to realize how um how heavy it actually is so and it's now science so it's not woo woo yeah. <laughs> There's an article that I saw recently that said that they've now proven that memories go back as far as 14 generations. Wow. There was a study that showed that they gave um, a female mouse the smell of a rose and they kept presenting this rose to her. But then after a while, every time they presented the rose to her, they shocked her. So now she associated the rose with the shock. And if they just presented the rose thereafter without the shock, she still had the physiological reaction as if she was being shocked. Does that make sense? Yes. So then she had a baby, that baby had a baby, that baby had a baby, that baby had a baby. So five generations down, they gave a rose to that mouse and she had the physiological reaction as if she was shocked without the shock. You've got to be kidding me. Wow. So fear gets passed down um, more than we think. We're not just processing our own personal stuff, Mm -hmm. such as an accident or neglect. Mm -hmm. We're processing stuff for our ancestors. So when people come to me for healing, they're doing work on behalf of the ancestors. Mm -hmm. And we are the first generation that can do can do this healing work because generations before, if you want to see a doctor or healer, you you'd have to go to your doctor. Now, maybe <clears throat> centuries ago, you could go see um, a pagan witch doctor or mm-hmm. a, um, some kind of uh, druid. Mm-hmm. Maybe in more ancient times or mm-hmm. or uh, you know five hundred years ago, where they were working with you know, plants and, and, uh, and different kinds of natural concoctions, which I fully, you know, support. Mm-hmm. 
But in the last century or so, if you were struggling, you'd go to your doctor and your doctor could do very little for you. And the truth is the doctors of today can do very little for you as well. Mm-hmm. They're, they're not designed to treat causes unless it's a broken bone or something like that. They're, yeah. they're there to t- treat symptoms. So ancestral trauma, what it does is pass down epigenet- epigenetically and it literally codes, codes your DNA. So codes your DNA. Mm-hmm. So you are being you're carrying the trauma of generations past at the cellular level, at a, mm-hmm. at a, sub, at a, at a sub-particle level. And, um, <clears throat> and so, yeah, it's a, it's a heavy load, and we need more advanced or shamanic healing approaches to, to clear those out. Yeah, absolutely. I know, and we get very protective of our traumas because once we do find a way to and, and when, when I read about your, how we stop them up, how we, how we become blocked, um, that the things that we do to protect ourselves from feeling those things become very precious to us because they serve us well in the sense that we don't have to experience these horrible feelings that go along with it. Um, but then I know for me, um, I had had some sexual trauma like over 20 years ago, me too comes along and I shut down because everyone's talking freely about all their stuff. And I was like, Mm-mm. nope, nope, nope. I just, I literally just went into a little cave for a while and came out when the coast was sort of clear, but I was happy for everyone. I was very, very supportive of the, the idea. Um, and I had no idea I was doing it until about a year after me too. And I went, why did I, why was I being like that? And like, we are very protective of our traumas and our ways of carrying on these things down the line because they guess maybe we feel that we're they're beneficial otherwise why would we encode them in our dna yeah i mean sexual trauma is a really <clears throat> heavy load as well i mean mm-hmm. it's it's especially when you're quite young yeah um when the brain is developing at the speed it is in those first five years but no matter the age it's a heavy load um, that creates a deep shame imprint and the nature yes. of shame is to hide. That's the nature of shame. Mm-hmm. You know, that's what I wrote about in the most recent article. It's to hide. Yes. Um, and so, um, you know, healing trauma or healing shame is about letting yourself be seen more. It's about coming out from the shadows a bit. Yeah. One of my favorite quotes is, is love is a place you go when you no longer want to hide. Oh, yes. <laughs> beautiful. It's a beautiful quote. So what we're trying to do is we're trying to reach more and more towards love. Mm-hmm. And that means having the courage to, to reveal ourselves bit by bit. And, 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 and that includes the shame. Um, and shame tends to hold belief systems such as I am wrong, I am bad, mm-hmm. I'm the worst, it's my fault. Um, those are common um, beliefs, um, particularly amongst sexual abuse survivors. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, because what happens is children um, generally will blame themselves for it. Yeah. Yeah. They think there's something wrong with them. And there's reasons why they do that, which I won't get into unless you want me to. Well, I, I know that purity culture for me was a huge enforcer of those. Because mine didn't happen until my 20s, but I, I absorbed it as if I was five in a lot of ways because that was reinforced through some of the spiritual communities I was a part of over my life. Um, but yeah, it, it's there are a lot of 
when I saw that, it was actually that article that sparked me to reach out to you because I just thought, you know, how we treat our children around this area of shame. I know I've been reading a lot of Brene Brown on, on shame and things like that. Um, but could you talk a little bit to that article and what you kind of wanted to tell the world about what children are experiencing when we shame them? Well, I, they're experiencing um, that certain parts of them are not welcome in the yeah. world. And so they need to hide certain parts themselves. And it's, and it could be certain emotions like anger or sadness, but mm -hmm. it can also be their dreams. It can also be their intuition. They can be raised in a, a house where they're told that they should be listening more to the parents more than themselves. And then mm -hmm. the school system, which is designed to inculcate uh, children to, to basically tell them what to think and do, mm -hmm although that's changing, it is traditionally designed that way, really forces children to bring their attention to the front of the room, but yeah. not internally. Um, so children are in many ways forced to, to hide aspects of themselves because those aspects are not safe to be. So they mm -hmm. compartmentalize. Again, trauma is a disconnect. So it's a, it's a compartmentalization. Another way of looking at trauma is that it, it's, it's separation consciousness. Really, the essence of trauma is separation. It's a split. It's a split from, from love. It's a split from our spirits, split from our, our, our true nature. Mm -hmm. And so those aspects then get hidden in the dark corners of our psyche. Um, and um, so, yeah, so... It, Play, you can think of play in its true form. And when I say true form, I mean play in the unstructured way. Mm -hmm. Play that is self-directed, um, free, uh, where children can roam and create their own rules. Mm -hmm. What happens is by, by that definition of play, it's quite fluid. It's quite exploratory. The child is following the whims and wishes of their intuition, of their heart, mm -hmm. their body. And as they explore and move and go about, you know, making mud pies or digging in the dirt or uh, that is digging in the dirt, <laughs> or, uh, you know, drawing or, or playing with Play-Doh or cars, they are, um, they're, engaging the with themselves in a way that they allow the intrinsic impulses that are moving through them to move yeah move so they're acting on their instincts so there's a movement in the body mind spirit where they're fluidly exploring their creativity mm -hmm. and their imagination now if we consider that trauma and shame specifically is a rigidity it's a stuckness it's a dam in the river Yes. Then what happens is, is the, by the nature of play, it's fluid state. It allows those to not get too stuck in the system because they're actually not just um, in a state of fluidity, but they're, I believe, in my opinion, that on some unconscious level, those particular dams are actually being expressed through play. So I am bad is finding its own outlet through drawing. I am wrong is expressing itself in, in, in exploring walking on a fence. Mm. So it's 
So play is the, what I call the instinctive therapist. The play, play is the portal to the spirit, soul. <sighs> so play is the expression of the soul. And uh, I'm actually getting a bit emotional. I am too. I'm like, I'm going to need to pause here to blow my nose. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, so play is the... Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, it's, it's the portal to the soul. And the soul knows how to, to work through the medium of play to ensure that those, those shamed aspects of the child find a resolution in the psychobiology. Wow. That's the gift of play. Yeah. Now, if we... Go ahead, go ahead. Oh, no, I was going to say, I, I listened to you on a podcast once before. Oh, I can't remember the name of it. I'll have to put a link to it. Because I initially kind of looked at play as like a form of self-care. Um, but then you had something to say about self-care on this podcast where you're like, this is a little different. Um, and the self-care is great, but it's not kind of where we want to go. I mean, do you remember that conversation? It's been a while, I think, but... Um, I might have discerned between self-care and healing. Yeah. That's what it is. Yeah, just sort of the, the self-care and taking bubble baths and doing these kinds of ex these kinds of things. I kind of thought of play at first, like when I was first doing playgrounding, I was like, well, we need to make time to go do, do fun things because that's what I was hearing from therapists and things like that. And that included, you know, do a facial mask one night or, you know, go to, to, go to a yoga class. And yes, all those things are great, but what play is was something so much more. Yeah. And yeah. <laughs> I get it now. You know, if we look at the, if we look at the, the work week, mm -hmm. the work week is split into five work days and two play days. Mm -hmm. The week is split into five work days and two play days. Mm -hmm. So we look at our, our, um, our day of going to work. We have our professional self, Mm -hmm. And then we have our personal self. We walk through the door of the office. We leave our our uh, our personal self at home. You know, yeah. question I sometimes ask people is, what part of you do you not bring to work with you? Mm -hmm. So, okay, I, I don't want to bring my imagination. I don't want to bring my silliness. It's not welcome. But the way we've compartmentalized our week and the way we compartmentalized our work versus home. Mm -hmm in my opinion, is a manifestation of the internal compartmentalization of play in our system. Ooh. Ooh. The big one. Yeah. So uh, the more we compartmentalize the, our inner child and our inner child's wisdom, mm -hmm. such as imagination, silliness, creativity, joy, wonder, dreaming. Mm-hmm. The more we box those in, because those aren't safe to grow up in, we create an outer reality that is an actual manifestation of that, which is a work week and a week and a, two days of play and a personal and professional life. And there's mm -hmm. other manifestations as well. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, the compartmentalization, it kind of leads me to want to ask you about now your 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 healing modalities that you use. I know you talk about somatic healing, that kind of thing. Um I, I don't, I, I would assume that what gets blocked in our psyche, it's in our bodies as well. And I don't really understand somatic healing that well, but would you mind sort of talking a little bit about why? Because I know you're into another one now that I want to get to, but I want to, you know, just sort of hear about your journey of what you decided to start using for healing. Well, I went through a healing crisis in 2009. I started getting very complex illnesses that, <clears throat> I don't know, I have a frog in my throat, but anyways. Um, <laughs> I seem to get it sometimes when I talk a lot. Um, 
in 2009, I started experiencing a whole host of chronic, undiagnosable, very bizarre symptoms. Um, for instance, one of them was uh, every time I spoke, I got very sick. So within 30 seconds of speaking, I would have a sore throat, a headache, heat on the scalp, mm-hmm. eye pressure. And this would, this, this would just last as long as I spoke. And, and then when I stopped speaking, it would go down to about 15%. It would just be there in the background. Hmm. But this, this alone, this issue lasted um, about four and a half years. Now, I was a speaker, you know. Yeah. Eight-hour workshops, I felt like <laughs> a boxing match getting just pummeled. By the end of the eight hours, I was just a broken mess um, mm-hmm. that all I wanted to do was go to bed. And, and, and there was other symptoms. I had heart problems, eye issues, foot issues, skin issues. Hmm chronic muscle pain. So I started going down a very, and I'd already done a lot of healing work on myself at this point, mm-hmm. but I started going down a very uh, strong uh, healing path, working uh, with all sorts of modalities, uh, mm-hmm. somatic therapy, osteopathy, cranial sacral work, acupuncture. But the thing that I found most powerful was working with shamans who were working with the, the traditional plant medicine, ayahuasca. Mm-hmm. So I worked a lot with that. I did uh, about 40 ceremonies. Wow. They were very, very difficult ceremonies, very hard. Really? But they really helped to trans, well, they didn't help, they transformed me. Mm. <clears throat> in those cer- in one of those ceremonies, I was, I was shown a, that I was going down a trail and then the trail forked. And it said, you've been going down this road as in, being a speaker, teaching, remembering to play, all this stuff. And now you're going to go down this road and you're going to become a healer. Wow. And they said, the first thing you're going to do, my guys, when I say that, I mean my spirit guides, mm-hmm. yeah. yourself. They said, the first thing you're going to do is you're going to become a, a somatic therapist. You're going to study to become a somatic therapist. So I just did. Mm-hmm. And I became a registered trauma informed somatic means body based. Mm-hmm. therapist and I built a practice and I had a full practice and then I became a certified breath worker so I started working with breath work um <clears throat> and what was great about that is that it really taught me the nuances of trauma and just mm-hmm. working with you know for full practice of clients I really understood not just trauma but trauma resolution like how trauma how to help it heal mm. but then when my practice was just beautifully overflowing and and everything was going wonderful i did another ceremony ayahuasca ceremony and then and this is in this video a lot of this is in this video i have on my website i'll post it for sure (laughs) yeah yeah these spirit beings came back again and started teaching me about starlight and they said you know uh they taught they taught me how to heal people using starlight and i was like what (laughs) and um so then after about four days of intense ceremonial work, they said, now go home and do it. And now go home, in other words, and heal people using starlight. So the, I had one brave woman decide to, to do it. She had chronic osteoarthritis, like lots of pain in her back and neck and hips. And she had it for decades. Mm-hmm. And I did, I did some healing work on her. Not a lot. I did three sessions. She lived in Toronto. Mm-hmm. Like, so she wasn't even in Vancouver. She actually didn't even know when I was doing it. <laughs> So I actually did it 
when she wasn't even aware that it was happening. Mm-hmm. And then I emailed her and said, your healings are done. How are you feeling? And all her pain was gone. Hmm. So this has then grown and grown and grown. And now I do it in, I was shown, I was shown other ways to heal people. And I work with groups of eight and I heal one-on-one with people remotely and in person. And, mm-hmm. and um, it's completely mind-boggling. It's miraculous. It's mind-boggling. It's not just miraculous in terms of the healing itself, but it's also obviously miraculous in terms of how it's done. Mm-hmm. And the results have been so profound that I'm, I'm going to close my practice, my, my counseling practice. I've already closed my breathwork practice, but I'm going to probably in the next year at most give it up. Wow. <laughs> that is amazing. And I know like, I, I know for me coming out of a very rigid evangelical world um, where in my, in my denomination didn't do healing in that same way. We would lay hands and that kind of thing. Um, but when I would see on TV people, you know, getting healed by, you know, just like a televangelist or something like that, um, we would all just kind of be like, you know, but yet at the same time, we'd believe in this healing power of Jesus and all these things. And I feel like it's, and then of of course, then as I was being way, I was looking at this world of healing and thinking, you know, there are groups of religious people who refuse to allow their children to go to the doctor because they don't believe that there's other types of healing. Like if you have an actual illness that a doctor can solve, then why would you not let them go and all that? So that for me, this, this has been very wrought with sort of things I can't, I don't understand and things that I don't, I can't prove or that I have, I can't read a journal article about or all these things. And, and so I'm, I'm bringing this up only because I know that, that, you know, I'll have listeners who have these same kinds of backgrounds and these same kind of feelings about hearing about these kinds of healings. But what I'm beginning to understand more and more, and I can only speak to my own, um, with my own path of, of learning and, and hearing and experience is that there's so much more to our physical bodies and that whether and our imaginations play a play a role, our our beliefs and our spirituality plays a role, and that there are things that we still can't prove that you know it, and that there are still things that we have to hold out our own hope for. Yeah, I don't know. Like, so how do when you're faced with people who have those kinds of questions about what you do, how do you kind of engage that? I don't, well, I don't, and I don't mean to think, say in any way that I'm disrespecting this. I'm just saying. Oh, no, I'm, I don't. I don't feel it at all. I think it's okay. an important question. I just want to quickly say, I think the, the maturity, a sign of our maturity, our spiritual maturity, mm-hmm. is when we can increasingly live without needing evidence of things. Ooh. We can accept that we just don't know and that we learn to bow to the mystery. And to me, that is a deep act of surrender to bow to, to mystery because the truth is, in my opinion, we just don't have a clue. And the more mm-hmm. I've gone down this rabbit hole of my own healing work, um, the more I've realized I don't know. And, um, and that's not comfortable for the ego. It's mm-hmm. not comfortable because we have to keep in mind that we've learned to survive by controlling ourselves meaning i'm going to control my emotions i'm going to Mm -hmm. compartmentalize and then that trans transmits into controlling others including children Mm -hmm. so it is a deep 
faith and letting go of control go hand in hand. They're two sides of the same coin. Mm-hmm. In terms of your, your last, your final point, um, yeah, I expect people to be skeptical. Mm-hmm. You know, I, it's it's going to be very difficult for people not to be. Mm-hmm. I mean, when I was taught how to do this by spirit guides, I didn't come home 100% confident that it would work. Mm-hmm. Even after that, I've had doubts, you know. I, I, I went through a lot of ups and downs doing this work because it really asked a lot of me to trust. Mm-hmm. You know, and when I started working with the groups of eight, which is I do a lot of now, um, where I'm healing eight people simultaneously and they don't know when the healing takes place. Mm-hmm. That took a huge act of faith because it's not like I would be letting one person down. I'd be letting eight people down if it wasn't. Yeah. <laughs> oh, so now it was like eight times the faith that was required. And, and, you know, I, we don't, but, but people, people have miraculous healings <clears throat> despite their skepticism, yeah, you don't have to be a full-on believer to heal. Mm-mm. The fact that someone comes to me and they sign up is the faith. So they can, so, so skepticism and fear can ride right along with faith as long as faith is still stepping forward. Yeah. And I, I mean, I feel like this actually kind of goes now a little bit into some of these articles you'd written about our, the state of our world right now. And with COVID-19, you know, um, a call to wake up from the perennial dream of normal. I mean, this is something we're all talking about, but I feel like right now there is a big cosmic battle, not cosmic at all. Sorry. No, this is very earthly. <laughs> this, is, this is a battle of, of what is true. What, what has evidence? What can we know? Um, and what kinds of things feel conspiratorial and, and manipulative and all that kind of thing. And, and I just, I feel like for me, and I just got done watching the, um, HBO documentary on Nexium, the, the, um, the cult and all of this. And so I feel like, and I'm very involved. I really, that's one of my things is I, I want to learn more about that kind of world and how that works. But the thing I keep coming up to time and time again, and it goes right back to what you said in the first place is that if you're learning something, if someone is teaching you something, and if there's something that you're being asked to have faith in that cuts you off from who you are and what you want and the the feelings of flow that you might've had as a child when you could just play and do the things you want to do. One of the first things that Keith Raniere did was it was trained people to be cut off from their feelings of hunger, of, of uncomfortableness of, you know, he would tell someone to, you know, you, you worry about dirt, go lick that puddle on the ground. You know, just those kinds of things. He would try to cut people off from the things that people had intuitively in themselves. And that was the first, that's the first thing that someone does to make you feel like, well, I don't understand it. So I guess I have to have faith in whatever this person is telling me. But I feel like your entire body of work is about helping people remember what they really want and who they really are and to listen to those those intuitive voices and to hear their own spirit voices and and to to listen to them and so i mean i think for me looking at something like what you do as someone who's been a huge skeptic about all of this stuff even i even allowed myself for a period i mean as a preacher's kid and i'm seminary trained i was going to be a pastor um i i had to allow myself to to stop believing all those things for a while, just to figure out what I truly believe. Um, and so for me, this is a really important question. And that, and that I love how it comes right back around is that your whole work is to remind us to trust ourselves, to not block all of those things. Um, 
And so even though there's part of me that thinks, I don't know about this, you know, but then I'm like, yeah, but his whole passion here is to help remind us to come back and to be integrated and to have flow and unblock. <laughs> yeah, I think the word integrated is a good one because yeah. integrate, um, which is related to the word integrity, mm -hmm. means nothing left out. Yes. Um, so there's two words that I like to use for healing, and that's in integration and embodiment, which you spoke to nicely just there. Um, so what we're doing is with healing, if, if healing is separation, sorry, if trauma is separation consciousness, mm -hmm. then healing is the path to wholeness. Yes. And integration and, and, and embodiment. Why I say embodiment is because what happens is when people are traumatized, they, they leave their body to some degree. Mm -hmm. They become more into, they become more identified with the intellect. Yeah. Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. It's not safe to be in the heart, so I need to be in my head. And then mm -hmm. we, we go to school and we get praised and graded and ranked based on how well we use the intellect. And then mm -hmm. we go into a society that pedestalizes and, and values us based on how well we use our intellect and our rational mind. Mm -hmm. So we have a society that is disembodied because of their own trauma reinforcing the trauma state of children who mm -hmm. are gradually leaving their own body. Yep. If we also consider that trauma is a state of disassociation where we actually have to leave our body to some degree to space out mm -hmm. because it's the, the nature of the traumatic experience is too much, too fast, too soon. Yeah, yeah. The of trauma, too mm -hmm. much, too fast, too soon. We have to leave our body to, to survive. So that's a second area where we don't, we don't, we're not in our body. And if we just compartmentalize our dreams, we compartmentalize our feelings. Mm-hmm. We, we are segmenting ourselves internally. Mm -hmm. And then we get illness. You know, what's interesting about um, cancer is that we're, we're now seeing that there's a link between cancer and trauma. Mm. And what is, what is cancer? Well, a cancer cell is a cell that has lost communication with other cells. Oof. It's a cell oh. that has become isolated in the system. Now, what does a cancer cell do when it becomes isolated? It mm -hmm. does one of two things. Either it kills itself or mm -hmm. goes on a rampage. Yep. Now, what does a teenager who goes and, and conducts a school shooting do? Well, the teenager, so, sorry, he's doing the same thing. Mm -hmm. the, the, the teenager is an isolated cell in the body of humanity mm -hmm. that either kills himself or goes on a rampage. Mm -hmm. So, wow. us is a cell in the larger body of humanity. And the more isolated we are from our larger family of human mm -hmm. beings and non human beings, the more we are in a traumatized state. Mm -hmm. So, the, the, you know, why I like restorative justice as compared to the, the normal legal system is because restorative justice invites a conversation yes. with the person. It allows there to be a dialogue, a connection, a reflection, an, uh, an area where they can take responsibility. But what the traditional legal system does is that it simply puts someone in a cell, further isolating them. Mm -hmm. You know, and 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 so we we um, so there's more possibility for healing, for transformation, for resolution, and and, and restorative justice because you are allowing that person mm -hmm. to reintegrate into society in some way, starting with a conversation. Yeah. 
Um, so that's sort of a macrocosm of what healing is internally is we're yeah. building conversations with the parts of ourselves that we've compartmentalized. We're building a conversation with our fear, with our anger, with our shame. Mm-hmm. We're saying, Hey, how are you? You know, uh, it's hard. And see play is where you say to that part of yourself, do you want to come out and play? Yes. Anger. You want to come out and play. Mm-hmm. So come out and play is on an external level, knocking on your friend's door and saying you want to ride a bike. But on an internal level, it's inviting those hidden aspects to come out from their dark chambers to be expressed in the world. Oh, my God. Yes. And I want to say one more thing. I know we need to wrap up soon, but I I just have to say when I came back to playgrounding, it was mainly because I ended up in an intuitive eating class. And And I really think that what all of this we're talking about now, where the solution that we're trying to use to fix ourselves, like the thing we want to heal from has to, if it's not going to reintegrate us, then it's going to make things worse. So for someone like me, the other option I had through my health insurance was to do something that was more diet oriented, but I had already done a hundred million diets and all the diets taught me was to not believe myself, to not listen to my hunger and my fullness, to not believe that I could want something like cereal or things like it was just the the diets were literally making me so much worse like everyone I tried and I feel like when I the more I learned about that healing process the more I started thinking and, and it connects into like something like Nexium, where the people were not broken before they went in. They were, of course, they had trauma, they had all their stuff, but then they went in and they were asked to deep, more deeply disconnect from their intuition. You know, that any anything that you think will heal you that more deeply disconnects you is going to f- not just fail, but it's going to make it worse. And I just love how bringing it back to that you want to play Because for me, the first day of that class, when I learned that I could go home for a week and eat whatever sounded good to me, I was like, really? I can eat cereal? And I did. I went out and bought cereal and I was so excited. But of course, you can't live on cereal. My body didn't want cereal every day for the rest of my life. But I I honestly thought that I was so untrustworthy that I could never allow that to happen. And so it's just once I started to branch that out into the rest of the world here. My cat does not want to this to happen. Um, <laughs> sorry, she's fucking. Um, when I started to let that branch into other areas of my life, I just discovered, and actually it dropped me back to you because I was like, there is something so much more compelling now that I didn't understand back when I was reading you years ago. And I know that you are then going, just starting on this process that you've been on. And I just cannot tell you how excited I am that I'm talking to you right now because, um, I don't, I think there's just so much I'm going to be learning from you in the future and that I want everyone to be learning from you because play really, I think what I was starting to see through your work, even back then and through what I was learning that there was something so much bigger to it and that maybe what we could do with play would get into the core and help reunite us and integrate us with ourselves and with others. So I just appreciate your, what do you say? I appreciate your journey and how you've shared it. And um, I'm really excited to learn more about Starlight and to hear more. You know, I want to put that video. I mean, no, I'm serious. Like I've seen in my own family illnesses that make no sense that oh, there she is, you know. And so it's it's one of those things where as long as we're not being asked to disconnect, which is the opposite of what you do, 
um, that we can let ourselves live in the mystery and explore and play like we're children. <laughs> so thank you for your work. Yeah, well, thank you for, for being a leader and, and being an advocate <laughs> playing for children. Yes. And, you know, I think I just want to finish by saying that um, for, for play, with, with play is a way that children stay connected. It's in their play that they stay connected. That's a simple way of saying it. I actually didn't put that on the article. Maybe I should have, but <laughs> the way they stay connected to themselves, to their spirit, to each other, to nature, mm -hmm. to life. And if we understand that the traumas of the world have the roots in separation. Yes. Then, then it's, we, it's, it's even more important to let children play and to nurture play. We mm -hmm. take care of play, we take care of children, and mm -hmm. we take care of the world. And, um, and I'm, I'm so glad to see that schools are, are catching up to this and, yeah. and they're recognizing the importance of, of play as being the foundation for all academic learning. Mm -hmm. and, um, and so uh, I can go on and on about this, but I will close with that. All right. Well, I'm sure I, I may be reaching out again, depending on what your articles are, because, yeah, just your work is really, really great and important. And there's a whole community of, of playful people out there that are advocating it, but they're all doing it in their own unique ways. And yours is one that I'm becoming more and more connected to um, as I've gone through my own journey. So thank you again for everything that you do. And I'm encouraging everyone to go. I'm going to post some of these articles, um, but it, sign up for his Monday Monday Inspirations. I, I just realized I didn't remember the name, but Monday Inspiration newsletter. Um, I have always, it's one of those newsletters that I keep. Like if I see, like if my inbox is full, I'll put a little flag on it. So I'm like, I have to go back and read this because I always get something great out of it. So I encourage you to go sign up for Vince's um, and it's VinceGaumon.com, G-O-W-M-O-N. Yeah, .com. And you can also uh, go to my Facebook page and Instagram account which is healing for a new world. Vince Gellman, healing for a new world. And, and uh, I post something almost every day there. So great. All right. Well, I will make sure to include all of that. And uh, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs> it's been an absolute delight. Me too. Thanks so much for listening. Be sure to subscribe to the Playgrounding newsletter at playgrounding.com. You will get updates on Playgrounding, but more importantly, you'll get links to events that are coming up and inspiring articles from the play community around the world. And who couldn't use more inspiration these days, right? <sighs> yeah. Anyway, until next time, stay playful, my friend.